Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to various guests about the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish and hold dear and would like to preserve in a time capsule, but they also have to choose one thing that they would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again, something they want to banish from their life. My guest in this episode is the writer David Quantic. And when I say writer, not just any old writer. David has written for On the Hour, Blue Jam, TV Burp with Harry Hill and the US Armando Iannucci comedy Veep, for which he won an Emmy. He started writing for the NME in the early 1980s, but it's when he became a comedy writer that his career really took off. He wrote for Spitting Image, The Day to Day, Chris Morris's Brass Eye, the TV series of Blue Jam called Jam, The Thick of It, and Smack the Pony. And for radio, that Mitchell and Webb sound and 15-minute musical, among many other things. He's written six fiction books and 15 non-fiction books, including Grumpy Old Men, How to Write Everything, Dress to Kill with Eddie Izzard, and Revolution, the making of the Beatles' White Album. More about that in our chat. In fact, I think it's about time we listen to it. So here is David Quantic and the five things, four good and one bad, that he'd like to put in a time capsule. So, yes, where are you at home? I'm at home in Hastings, yeah. At Hastings? Oh, that's not far from me. I'm Tunbridge Wells. Oh, fantastic. I can tell by your decor that you live in Tunbridge Wells. Very nice. <laughs> yes, but I haven't got um, Emmys and things behind me. Oh, uh, this old thing? Yeah, I just found it <laughs> lying around. Didn't mean to put it on such public display. <laughs> yeah, so are you happy with the idea of this? Absolutely, yeah. It's... Yeah, I think it'd be fun to find out what they are. <laughs> that's the joy for me, actually. I always say to people, people say, shall I send them to you? And I say, no. Tell me when I see you. Yeah, I'm like that. I did an interview once on the radio, and the bloke was very nice, but he said, we need to go through all the questions first, and we did. And by the time we did the interview, I'd lost the will to live. <laughs> just like, I've just told you this. <laughs> and then it's never funny, is it, the second time around? Never funny. It's like, if you want me to script it, I could do that. But if you want me to be funny, I have to make some of it up. <laughs> yeah. It's like your mum going, tell them what you told me. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. All right. Well, let's have a go at it then and see where we get to and how it goes. So, David, uh, David Quantic. So, where's the derivation of that? Derivation of that, and hello to you too, is um, 
my dad's very distant ancestors came from the Quantock Hills. Oh, right. So it's very literally a topographical place name going back about a thousand years. So my dad grew up in Plymouth, so his family made the perilous journey from Somerset to the Tamar River. And along the way, <laughs> the O in their name changed to an I. It's a very rare surname, which has been fantastic for work. It's also a high Scrabble score. You can use proper names in modern Scrabble. And it's very good on the internet because these days, as you know, people have to change the spelling of their names. You know, if you've made the mistake of calling yourself John Smith, yeah. no one will ever find you. But Quantic is quite good. You're not going to find any others, are you? I'm one of the very few. There's probably very few Fenton Stevens. But there are, which is why it is Fenton Stevens. In fact, originally it was just Stevens. And the Fenton is my wife's name. Oh, it's very cunning. I'm not naturally a double-barrelled sort of chap. Oh, I was assumed you were aristocracy. <laughs> Royalty, I think, surely. Royalty, yeah. <laughs> They've got quadruple-barrelled names. Their names are basically half of Germany, aren't they? <laughs> they are, yes. OK, David, we're going to talk about five things you want to put into a time capsule. Four things that you love and one thing that you want to get rid of. And that's it. Fantastic. That should fill a couple of hours. Well, that's the plan. Um, yeah, did Barry Cryer ever get onto number one of his topics? Um, <laughs> Barry Cryer nearly made me crash. He phoned me when I was driving and told me a joke, and I nearly crashed. I can't believe the number of people who say to me, Barry Cryer rings me up and tells me jokes. As soon as he hears a joke he likes, he just goes through his phone book, I think. I think he's just got a huge control centre. He's like, uh, Archbishop joke, Bip, call Mike Fenton Stevens, and it's like, parrot joke, call everyone, nationwide alert. <laughs> I think you're probably he's right. A national resource. Oh, he's a, he's absolutely fantastic. No, he never did really get onto any of the things. I did sort of have to say, <laughs> well, should we put that in the time capsule? What do you think? And he'd go, yeah, I, I don't know, Mike, I'm not interested in that. No, let's talk about, anyway, so me and Ronnie Corbett, and, and <laughs> it was just brilliant. And, of course, he's the only person I've interviewed who actually insisted on meeting in the pub. Fantastic. Mm. So here we are in... Not in pubs. No, sadly. I think we'll be in bunkers soon, and then we'll be broken down onto a cellular level and just be <laughs> tiny atoms yes. blinking at each other. Of course, <laughs> we read it here first. Oh, David, you remind me of... Well, I'm going to remind you of it, The Glorious Blue Jam. Oh, I love that show. Which I think is when I first came across you and thought, I don't know that bloke. And I have to say, it was one of those moments in my life where I realised that everything I'd done up until that point was wrong. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but I think the moment of realisation that things were different was when Chris Morris took me and my writing partner at the time, Jane Busman, to the pub mm. and said, I've got an idea and it's like this. It's about a couple who are worried that their son is gay. So what they're going to do is get their best friend to have sex with him <laughs> to stop. I forget the reason for this, <laughs> but you want you just think, okay, this isn't the two Ronnies. <laughs> the two Ronnies never sat down and thought, and finally. Mm. But yeah, it was an extraordinary experience. And it was a just, very liberating. It was one of those shows. It wasn't always funny, and it wasn't always meant to be funny. No. Um, that was quite liberating as well, as, because I worked on a lot of shows that weren't funny, but were meant to be funny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm very... It's my favourite thing that I've worked on with Chris Morris, I think. Really? Of all of them. Yeah, well, because it, it had those extraordinarily disturbing moments as well, particularly when it went to television. In Jam, I remember, just those bits where you'd think, I think they've actually gone mad. It was very... Creepy. And one of the reasons I had always thought at the time, and I think I've read Chris say this, is that he'd just become a dad. And, you know, parents, we all have fears about our children and our safety. Chris's way of expressing this was in absolutely horrific sketches <laughs> about pipes being fitted into babies and things like that. So Chris was expressing his fears about children by inflicting horrible fates on small children. <laughs> One way of dealing with parenthood. Oh, I suppose so. That gets rid of the demons, yeah. It certainly did, oh. I hope, anyway. Oh, how wonderful. OK, right, sorry, to divert you away from uh, your first item. So let's, let's find out what it is, David. Well, I just thought I'd start with the obvious one, which is a musical item, because I love music and I'm sometimes a music journalist, and it's the White Album by The Beatles. Oh, glorious. Why that one particularly? Because it's double. It's double. I mean, yeah. If this was Desert Island Disc, it would be an obvious choice because I'd never get bored. But there's a lot of reasons. One is that I wrote a book about it, but that's kind of circular logic. Mm. 
Another is that I love the Beatles. Mm. Um, the third is just it's a kind of memory moment because I was at school in the sixth form. There was an older boy called Nick Cooper who loved Deep Purple. He loved them so much that he was saving up to buy a guitar so he could play Deep Purple songs <laughs> on it. And he was selling his record collection. And this was the mid-'70s when record collections weren't obviously that big because music hadn't been going very long. And he sold me Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Revolver, and the White Album, which is interesting because Sgt. Pepper at the time was the most popular album of all time. You yeah. know, it always won all the polls. So I was familiar with it, also because of the compilations, the Red and the Blue albums. I knew it quite well, but it was beautiful. It had a shiny, colourful sleeve. It was very exotic. Of course, I loved it. Yeah, Revolver was great. I love Revolver, but the White Album was so weird. Yeah. Because it didn't sound like Love Me Do or Yesterday, and it didn't sound like Let It Be or you know something or Here Comes the Sun. It was really long, as you say. It was a double album, and it was weird. Some of it was really weird, like Revolution Number no. 9. Mm. Some of it was a bit weird, like Cry Baby Cry and Happiness is a Warm Gun. You know, I'd never heard much music at this point, to be honest, but I'd never heard anything like it. And because it's so sprawling, and, you know, there's loads to do, there's posters and pictures, you can lose yourself in it. You know, it is an attic. Mm. And that memory of having that record and playing it and going, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> and that record has stayed with me. You know, I've owned it in every different format. I buy it every time it comes out. So I wrote a book about it. When they brought in CD jukeboxes, I remember this really clearly. They'd have the track listing, obviously. But when it got to revolution number nine, it was blank. It would say, track 19, back in the USSR. Track 20, Dear Prudence, Gap. Track 22, Cry... And it was so that people would not put revolution number nine on in the pub. Really? Many of my friends knew the track listing by heart. So we'd always go in the pub, put on Revolution Number Nine, and have all the place to ourselves. <laughs> number Nine, Number Nine. Oh, oh. Even now, it's one of my favourite. I went to see a Dutch band whose name escapes me, and they recreate Beatles albums. Yeah, and they're fantastic. They're great musicians and great singers. I went with my friend Joel Morris, and it was like, I wonder how they're going to do Revolution Number Nine, and they did it. <laughs> they did it with samples and vocals and bits of video. In fact, I think they just showed it as a video film, and it's amazing to see as a film because it's got a story. I mean, not literally, but it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a crescendo, like a symphony. And even though it's not music in the love-me-do sense, it's fantastic. Yes, I mean, I join you in my love of that album uh, in as much as there are all those songs on it that you go, oh, this is very Beatles. There are those lovely sort of, um, well, Paul McCartney-esque, really sweet, yeah. charming songs. And then... A lot of them, it's as if John Lennon went, yeah, no, I'm not going to write the next bit of that. <laughs> you could almost hear him saying, no, it's too sweet, Paul. You sing the first bit, but I'm not going to do the second bit. Uh, I'm not going to do the barb. But then it's also got things like, hasn't it got um, Rocky Raccoon? Rocky Raccoon. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, it's got Obla Dibla Da and I Will. Mm -hmm. It's got some beautiful pop moments. You know, it's got, as they always say about the Beatles, hits for other people. Yeah, yeah. Because the Beatles always had two hits on every album. They had the one that was their single and the one that was someone else's single, like <laughs> Cliff Bennett doing Got to Get You Into My Life and Michelle being done by somebody. But this one had Obla Dibla Da done by, I've forgotten who it was, Marmalade. Marmalade, yes. The Marmalade. <laughs> but yeah, it's got... Bungalow Bill, which is horrible, and Wild Honey Pie, which is horrible, and Year Blues, which is not only a blues, which I hate, but also there's a bit where the microphone dies and they left it in. You can imagine George Martin <laughs> enraged at this. There's a whole verse where it's just the band playing and you can just hear John go about 20 feet away. Yeah. So it's it's a unit, it's not an attic, it's a I mean, famously, they were going to call it Music from a Doll's House, which everyone agrees is a great title. Mm. Because it is like a world of creepy miniatures and there's something different in every room. Mm. Very hard to get bored of the White Album. Yes. And that Doll's House idea is perfect because it does often feel that they've stopped a song before they've finished it. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, Paul liked his shortcuts and John could be a bit abrupt. There's a famous thing I read about back in the USSR that he's playing a boogie piano, but he doesn't play all the notes. He gets bored and he comes back... I don't understand music. It's like, da, da, da. just when he, before he gets to the normal bit, he just keeps going because Beatles were very impatient people. 
which could often cause a lot of problems. It's like, we're doing this now, but it's 4 a.m., mm. you know, or we're coming in tomorrow. What? You know, they could spend 25 hours on a seagull sound and then record yesterday in five seconds. Yeah. Well, I think that work ethic was drilled into them very early on. They were good working-class boys, and they had a strong work ethic. So the idea of we're doing another gig, we're doing another gig, we're doing another gig, which they did for sort of two years before they broke, by the time they actually got to start recording stuff, it was easy what they were doing. I'd grown up, you know, being told, oh, the Beatles were rubbish live because it was kind of the age of the proficient rock musician. Mm. You know, and if you couldn't play a solo while you were dead, then you were no good. <laughs> and so when I actually heard things like the Hamburg tapes or Hollywood Bowl, yeah. it's like they seem to be in tune. They seem to be playing quite difficult things. They're certainly rocking. Yeah. It's all these things the Beatles couldn't rock, the Beatles couldn't play. It's like, sounds pretty it's badly recorded, but it sounds pretty good. I would have enjoyed that show. Yeah, I have a feeling that the reason people say that is because there were many years when the Beatles had to perform where they couldn't actually hear themselves. Yeah. Because people screamed. Uh-huh. And in the end, it's why they stopped performing, isn't it, I think? Because they said, what's the point? Nobody's listening to us anyway. And their music moved beyond the point of just being able to stand up with the guitars and stuff and do it. It was more complicated. And they thought, well, you know, either it's just us four or we take an entire orchestra on stage with us and you know do big concerts. So they sadly never performed together again. I would have liked to have seen Paul McCartney when he first started Wings, when he sort of turned around in a bus and turned up in pubs. I would have. I've heard bootlegs, and it's a bit unformed. It's very sweet because it's sort of like, okay, here's a new single, and it's not bad. Oh, here's a Little Richard song, and now here's Henry McCulloch doing a 20-minute blues song. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I never want to hear that again. <laughs> yeah, then Wings got slick, yeah, and they were great. But yes, those early days would have been very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'd love a time machine and go and see any of the Beatles do any concert at any point. Yes. My cousin is in A Hard Day's Night. Is he? She. She. Yes. I assumed my... it would be a man. No, no, Which... no. My cousin Lynn was in the Beatles fan club in London, which is where they filmed the final scene in the theatre. So they invited the Beatles fan club from London to go and see the concert and to scream, obviously. Now, my cousin... I suppose at the age of 16 or 17, was very beautiful. And there's an enormous shot of her screaming and putting her hands either side of her face, so not actually covering her face. Fantastic. And I've, I've never seen that film in the cinema. I'd love to see it in the cinema, just to see that enormous face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I'll keep an eye out for that next time. Yeah, look for that moment. You'll recognise it. It's one of the really iconic moments in the film. And that's my cousin that's Lynn. fantastic. Yeah. And obviously the family beauty has continued. Oh, obviously, obviously, Well, I'm yes. very envious of your cousin. <laughs> it hasn't gone down the male line. <laughs> uh, I'm saying nothing, but I know if I'd been in that film, they would have asked, would have put a bag over my head before they'd done the close-up. <laughs> Golden days. Oh, wow, the fantastic White Album. Well, I could talk about the Beatles for hours and hours, so why not? <laughs> let's carry on. Yeah, let's just do that. <laughs> let's talk just do that. Uh, I did go to see Wings in one of those big concerts. Well, I say big concerts, not really. Earl's Court, I think. You know, so I saw mm. Wings and I saw you know, Live and Let Die and all those explosions and things. Wow. That was great. But I would love to have been... James Corden did a thing with Paul McCartney where he went back to Liverpool recently and he performed in a pub. I saw that, yeah. Now, I'm sure it wasn't as spontaneous as it seemed. <laughs> That's me being cynical. But, you know, what a thing to do. Yeah, that would be quite overwhelming. When the anthology was on television and the Beatles were sort of back in the public consciousness for the first time in a while, I actually dreamt that I went to see the Beatles, <laughs> which was such a realistic dream. I feel I did. It was sort of at the um, roundabout the Let It Be era, and it was in an aircraft hangar, and I remember John Lennon crouched down and looked at me. So I kind of feel I've met the Beatles. It's close enough. <laughs> well, who knows? Perhaps that is reality. That is reality. Somewhere I'm still seeing the Beatles. Yeah, well, it would be a lovely thing. I once received a telegram from Paul McCartney. Oh, fantastic. We did a parody of Wings, and he very kindly wrote a telegram which said, why can't you leave us poor sharecrop farmers alone? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great man. No doubt about it. I mean, they all were, I think. But there we are. All right, the Beatles double white album goes into your time capsule as your first item. I'm now very envious of your time capsule, and we'll move on to see what number two is. Number two is, again, from the world of entertainment, and it is the movie Blazing Saddles. Ah, David, are we twins? <laughs> we might be. <laughs> we might be Fenton Quantic, who knows? I love that film. Go on, tell me what you love about it. 
Right. Well, I was a teenage comedy fan. I liked the goons and the goodies and you know various Monty Python spin-off things, really, because I think they had come off the air by and large. And it was my 14th birthday, which meant that I could go and see what they used to call a double A certificate, which was a film which was almost adult, which was an A and then there was X. So me and my friends went to Exeter, because that's where the big cinema was, and we saw a double bill. And they weren't new films. They were two reissued. One was Bullet, mm-hmm. which I thought was rubbish. It was <laughs> some cops talking for about a year. And then there was a car chase, which went on forever. And then there was four <laughs> cops. So I didn't really enjoy Bullet, and I didn't understand it. But the second film was Blazing Saddles. And I think I'd heard of it. I think I'd watched Barry Norman, and I was aware that it was funny but not aware how funny. And it destroyed me. It blew me away completely because the humour I kind of recognised from the goons and from Bugs Bunny cartoons, but it was filthy in every way. It was incredibly tasteless in every way. It had a really politically correct message about racism, which I wasn't entirely expecting. It's a kind of film you can't really quote necessarily except amongst close friends, but it's a perfect movie. And it's absolutely side-breakingly... It's the, it has to be the funniest film ever made, without a doubt. It instilled in me a lifelong love of Mel Brooks, even on his bad days. I'll watch a Mel Brooks film. And, yeah, that's it. Completely overwhelming experience. Yes. And A World Without Blazing Saddles would be a very bad one, hence the time capsule. Yes. And you're right, it is of its time. There are jokes in it that you just couldn't do now. And not because they've become... Well, actually, I think because, in a way, they're too daring, some of them. Some of them are fantastically sexist. <laughs> There's the joke of putting the pen into the pen holder. Think of your secretary, Governor. And then there are, um, well, I suppose, the first uses of the N-word, really, in a film. In comedy, which is extraordinary, isn't it? And it's beautifully done. It's very wrong. Mm. But, no, it's beautifully done because it's so shocking. It's used semi-sparingly. It's used, by and large, at dramatic moments, co-written with Richard Pryor, who was supposed to play the part of the sheriff, but... Was he? Yes, but he was... I think the phrase is uninsurable. Ah. Uh. He, you know, he had a slightly colourful life, to say the least. So the studio cast an unknown who was brilliant. Um, Gene Wilder. Genius. Gene Wilder. As I get older, I realise how weird Gene Wilder was. When I was a kid, I thought he was just silly. He'd be in those films with Richard Pryor when he'd just run around and be goofy. But, you know, in films like Young Frankenstein and The Producers and Willy Wonka, <sighs> Willy Wonka's one of the most disturbing performances in a kid's film ever. And Gene Wilder's so lovely in Blazing Saddles. And, of course, let's not forget the, um, there's nothing wrong with your hand. Uh, I shoot with my left hand. It's just <laughs> horny. Anybody who's never seen that joke, it's, oh, it's brilliant. Wonderful. His hand is perfectly still. He says, I thought you had a problem shooting. He says, yeah, look at that hand. And it's rock solid. He says, with nothing wrong with your hand. He holds the other one up and it's shaking <laughs> all over. He says, I shoot with this one. It's so good. <laughs> and the big sequence, I've got a big comedy theory, which is there's a history of American comedy that goes from things like Hell's a Poppin' and the Marx Brothers through Bugs Bunny, through Mad Magazine, which is kind of fourth wall comedy. Mad Magazine would do it. You know, they'd make comments on things. Bugs Bunny would literally step out of the scene. And Blazing Saddles has the great moment when it's the line of people joining the gang. <laughs> and it starts with a few badasses, there's some Mexican bandits, and there's a Nazi tank, <laughs> and there's the Ku Klux. And it's just whatever, because comedy, you can do what you like. And he apparently was a big fan of Monty Python, which is why the film has the silly ending where they just break out of the screen completely. And I think it's a better ending than Holy Grail, where Holy Grail, they've just run out of ideas, whereas in Blazing Saddles, it's kind of just very silly. It also does that thing of jumping from incredibly silly schoolboy jokes, so the farting as they're sitting around eating beans, which every teenage boy thought was fantastically funny. And then you sort of go, that's a bit of a cheap joke. And then you come back to it and go, no, it's a great joke. (laughs) Mungo. Mungo's a great character. Candy Graham for Mungo is one of the great sequences. Oh, God, what a film. And it's like, it's relentless in that every scene, you could show it on a compendium of comedy. You could reenact it in a pub. Every single scene, the songs, Hedley Lamar, there isn't a moment in it that's not a joke. 
you do it for Randolph Scott. <laughs> Randolph Scott! <laughs> I don't even understand that joke, but I still love it. Oh, my word. I haven't watched it for years. And, and yet, there you are, you see. There's both of us. We remember this film in extraordinary detail. Yeah. I've probably seen it about four times. I haven't seen it. I may have seen it about five years ago, mm. actually, to be fair. I'm topped up on it. But, yeah, get three people together. We could reconstruct it. You know, if there was a nuclear war, we could reenact it in the ruins of the world and tour it to make a lot of money. <laughs> Pretend it was ours. Yeah, who knows? These days you can get away with anything on the internet. We'd be fine. They would have no idea. They'd probably have no idea what we were talking about, but, you know, you can try. Before they wanted to eat our flesh. <laughs> <laughs> that would happen. I watched The Producers the other night, oh. and you're right about Gene Wilder. I know that my son was madly in love with him when he was a young boy, because of Willy Wonka. And that is weird, because you're right, it's a very weird, dark performance. But I think he really holds you, doesn't he, all the time. There are moments in the producer, yeah. the moment where he goes into a panic and needs his little blue blanket. Oh, yeah. It's it's heartrending. It's so sad. Yeah, and there's something kind of a lot... You want it to stop, because you're genuinely afraid that he might soil himself <laughs> yeah. or do something terrible. He's a real... I mean, they're kind of, both of them are kind of endearing. You know, they're Laurel and Hardy. Zero Mostel's yeah. a blustering bully, mm. but kind of soft. Gene Wilder's Stan Laurel, he's the child in it. And they're both trapped. <laughs> it made a terrible, I'd love to see. I had an idea for a, a routine about original versions of famous films, like the 1930s <laughs> Star Wars, which is like Buck Rogers, and the original version of Love Actually, starring Cary Grant. Oh, wow. But I would love to see Laurel and Hardy's producers, a Laurel and Hardy film where Laurel and Hardy become theatre producers and accidentally back a movie by a Nazi. <laughs> I mean, it would be... I'm going to put that in my short story now. Thank you for inspiring me. Oh, dude. But that would be... You could just imagine Laurel and Hardy going, I'm wearing a cardboard belt. <laughs> <laughs> That's my impression of them. Yeah, I saw um, the stage show of the producers with Nathan Lane in it. The fantastic luck that I think Richard Dreyfus had dropped out. So Nathan Lane stepped back in. And it not only was it brilliant, and Lee Evans was fantastic in the Stan Laurel role, like in Mouse Hunt, mm -hmm. Nathan Lane. So more parallels. But there's a brilliant thing they did on stage. During the famous swastika dance routine, when they form a swastika, they put a mirror up so that you could see the swastika. And because I knew the film quite well, I knew that what the audience do is they do the shocked face. And Mel Brooks even has a man with a monocle, so he can do the monocle drop. <laughs> I thought, right, God. they're doing the movie, they're doing the dance, I'm going to be the audience. So I did the face. I went, exactly, you do it better. <laughs> just as a tribute. If you've never freeze-framed that moment, do. Yeah. The moment with the wide shot of the audience and then very carefully look through it at everybody's face, you will be entertained for an hour. It's one of the many reasons Mel Brooks is a genius. He understands that not only do you have to have the swastika dance, which is kind of, that's what this movie is about, but you have to see the audience's face. <laughs> you can't just cut away to the producers or something. You have to see the audience going oh, my God, this is the worst thing ever. Yeah. Oh, David, you know what? I'm sorry, but I'm going to top your story about Nathan Lane. I'm up for being top. Okay, I went to see that at a preview, and as they came to the moment where the man went, and now it's... And he was about to start singing the song, and somebody walked on and said, stop, stop, wait, and the revolve had got stuck, and so they stopped the show. And the curtain came in, and Nathan Lane and Lee Evans came on stage, and Nathan Lane said, well, we've got a problem, mate. We seem to... Anyway, London, it's a great place, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, off he went, and then for about half an hour, we were entertained by an improvised comedy from those two. Oh, my God. And then somebody said, OK, we fixed it. And they said, OK, we're ready to go on. And wow. the curtain went back up, and they went, and now it's springtime. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. What a place for a break. That's amazing. When it happened, all of us thought, this is deliberate. It has to be. It couldn't possibly happen at that point. Yeah, well, you never know. Didn't happen the night I went, so it's definitely not part of the show. Well, yeah, 
I'd absolutely forgotten that film, David, so thank you very much. You know, when you have these things in the past that you know you love, and then somebody mentions it, and I'm completely with you on that. And if you've never watched Blazing Saddles, please do. Okay, that goes in as your second item. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So what's number three? Okay, let's take a short break from David and me chatting and listen to some ads, shall we? Well, I'm afraid you're going to have to. I'll be back in a second. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to My Time Capsule with me and David Quantic, talking about the things you would put in a time capsule. Right, let's find out what's next. Number three is a bit less exciting, although it has the same initials, bizarrely, and it's bacon sandwiches. <laughs> because bacon sandwiches are, well, they're great. They're fantastic. I love them. Can't eat them all the time because I die. Um, but mm. they're brilliant. They're urban myth-wise. They're the one thing that vegetarians miss. Are you a vegetarian, Mike? No, I'm not, no. Nor am I. So we'll never know. I'm told this is not true and that vegetarians do perfectly well without bacon sandwiches and probably miss something else like raw deer killed with their own teeth. I don't know. But no, I don't have a lot to say about bacon sandwiches, except, well, I have very specific requirements that the bacon has to be kind of chewy because American bacon, it's one of the many things wrong with America. You know, they use the word robin to describe a kind of eagle with a red chest. Their word (laughs) muffin means some kind of epic bloaty thing that's got blackberries in it. And what they call bacon, we call charcoal. American bacon is these kind of strips of burnt stuff that snaps in your hand. It's gone cold as well, hasn't it? Isn't that weird? Yeah, cold bacon. What's the point? You might as well wait for your pig to die. (laughs) It's horrific. Who wants cold? So proper bacon has got to be kind of reasonably thick, pink, and a bit chewy. It's got to be butter and not margarine, because I can tell. I mean, I'll eat margarine on anything else, but not bacon sandwich. It's got to be white bread. I mean, I can't imagine how people managed before the invention of white bread. You know, eating a bacon sandwich in 1890 going, it's not bad, there's something missing. (laughs) This nutty bread is wrong. It's always weird when someone says, you like bacon sandwich, and they give you one on brown. It's like, no. Mm. It's all right for a BLT. So it's got to be white bread so that the butter seeps into it in a kind of weird egg yolk way. And ketchup is optional, but nice. You can even have posh ketchup. I'm not against wealthy people. <laughs> but yeah, and tea, not coffee. It's right. got to be a kind of cafe experience, even if it's in your own mansion. And bacon sandwiches are just the perfect food stuff. It's a shame they're not good for you. That's a real miscalculation on God's part there. He deliberately creates that world where this is really nice, but it's naughty. It happens all the time, and which is why I suspect he's not real, because I think that it's nasty old men who made it up. <laughs> they just went, look at this, isn't it lovely? Oh, look, can't do it. You can't do it. 
I think it's right because, I mean, what would be the point of resisting temptation if it was easy? I mean, if you're a monk and you're sitting on a pole for 50 years and somebody goes, would you like a rat sandwich? And you go, no, of course not. <laughs> oh, that's easy. But, you know, bacon sandwich. It's like, I'm resisting temptation. I've got a bacon sandwich. All right, sod this. I'm going to come in down and I'm going to have <laughs> sex with some prostitutes and ride a motorbike after 11 o'clock at night through a built-up area. <laughs> you know, I mean, if Jesus had been taken into the wilderness by the devil and the devil was like, would you like a bacon sandwich? Jesus probably like, yeah, why not? And I'm not going to do all those things. I'll be king of the world and have bacon sandwiches. <laughs> bacon sandwiches are the ultimate temptation. And, of course, Jesus did all those fabulous, I'm, I'm going to offend people now. <laughs> to a large extent, he was uh, largely, um, <clears throat> he was a magical caterer, wasn't he? Magical caterer. He was able to produce wine out of water and he could turn one loaf and a fish into lots of food for lots of people. It's a brilliant thing. I can't quite understand why he mixed those miracles, which are impressive, with bringing people back from the dead, which is really impressive. You, know, you sort of go, oh, you're letting yourself down a bit with the old, water into wine thing aren't you it is an odd palette because you've got walking on water which is kind of between them because mm. walking on water is what i like about that is there's no actual reason to do it he just went to talk to the disciples he didn't go and pull their boat to shore he just <laughs> went over and said look and they're like wow <laughs> well we i don't know because i'm a bit ignorant of the gospels or maybe he starts with wine and water then moves on to fish and bread then to walk in on water, and then the whole thing, you know, the Lazarus thing. <laughs> and then eternal life. Then eternal life. It's very interesting. But, yeah, if Jesus had turned the loads of fishes into – I mean, I'd have been there going, like, it's all very well, fish, but bacon? <laughs> of course. Bacon sandwich, would that be okay? <laughs> I mean, he's a Christian, so there, there are no dietary issues here. No. God, he would have upset the Jews, though, wouldn't he? It wouldn't have been ideal. No. I believe that bacon is a stricture. I'm sorry, I'm taking you down blue jam routes here. <laughs> I like that interesting thing about you, David, that you have this very sort of, in a way, almost classical comedy element to you, which is good jokes, <laughs> but then mixed with this wonderful sort of bizarreness, and that's a brilliant combination to have. Very. I mean, all I can say about that is that yeah, the comedy revelations in my life were, as I say, Blazing Saddles, but also The Goons. And that was like, for me, it was, it's, you read about people like The Beatles hearing Elvis Presley in the 50s and suddenly the light going on and suddenly the world looks boring. <laughs> you know, you step outside the world and you go, I've been living in a world of stewed tea and mind the gap and people going on about the war. And while I didn't quite have that, when I heard the goons, suddenly it was like you'd look at Terry and June and go, this is rubbish. This is drivel. You were in that, weren't you, Mark? You were no, 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 the no. next door neighbor. Well, the next door neighbor's child, you'd have to be. Mm. And I loved surrealism, and I still do. Surreal comedy is still my favorite thing. So many great goons jokes. You know, it's, I always forget this one, but it's like, ah, you owe me to. Here's a photograph of a 10 shilling note. Ah, would you like some change? Here's a photograph of a five-shilling note. <laughs> yes. Just the, the logic of insanity. Yeah. To the extent that when I saw Monty Python, I did just think this is just the goons with graduates. With clever words. With clever words <laughs> and with more violence. I was friends with N.F. Simpson, Wally Simpson, for a, towards the end of his life, mm -hmm. and a huge fan of his. And the Pythons and Peter Cook were big fans of his too. And it's interesting because Wally, as we called him, was quite big in the 50s. He was a playwright. He was an absurd, we didn't like the word. He was kind of like the Spike Milligan of theatre. Very similar sense of humour, brilliant comic writer, but a little more philosophical. And when Pythons came along, I think they kind of killed it for him because they were so much more violent, mm. especially with Graham Chapman and Terry Gilliam. All about sex and violence, which was great and really worked. But, you know, it left that kind of gentle surrealism behind. Yes, What's interesting is this, when the surrealism came back with Vic and Bob and with Ross Noble and other people like that, mm. it was a bit more gentle again. There was a tweeness to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was just, uh, you may think that we're not saying anything funny. You may think that we're just having a chat now as strange characters. But if you get it, it's gorgeous, isn't it? Absolutely right. A lot of Vic and Bob, because they haven't actually said, I remember once working in an office and picking up a Vic and Bob script and just thinking, this is drivel. And then I saw it go out on television, and I'm like, this is genius. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, quite a gap, really. Yes, isn't it just? It relies entirely on them. Uh, well, yes, I'm with you on bacon sandwiches completely. That is my recipe for bacon sandwiches, without doubt. Good. White bread, butter, 
not too crispy, the bacon. It needs to have a chew to it. I don't put sauce in. I'm a purist, I'm afraid. I'm a purist. I think if it's my birthday, I might put ketchup in. Just like a Christmas treat. On Christmas Day, I might have a ketchup in my bacon sandwich. <laughs> like cranberry sauce with meat. Oh, yeah. The rest of the year, you wouldn't even dream of it, would you? Why would you put jam in meat? It doesn't make any... It is jam. It is. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to put a lovely bacon sandwich. Oh, fantastic. Imagine we're on location. I'm going to put it in silver foil to keep it warm for you. Oh, yeah. Loca- that's right. I should say, uh, cup of tea, all those things, and served in a converted bus <laughs> on the location of a TV show with, I don't know, Maggie Smith in curlers sat 10 feet away. <laughs> You're in heaven. <laughs> that's just the perfect setting indeed all right that's it that's where it is it's in there so that's three items so we've got two left david right the last of the good ones yeah okay i am choosing wednesdays <laughs> okay <laughs> why because wednesdays get a bad press people call it hump day and it's like oh the rest of the week to go we're halfway through well something wrong with your week if you're taking it out on a day <laughs> it's a day it's done nothing to you it's just a top day also it's Woden's day if you're into that sort of thing so it actually belongs to the king of the gods and it'd be a bit stupid slag off the day of the king of the gods <laughs> but you know that's up to you um sheffield wednesday i'm not a football fan but i was born in sheffield so football wise were i to become a fan i would have to become a fan of Wednesday doesn't make any sense, that really. But Sheffield, <laughs> I mean, a football team with the word Wednesday in its name. Beautiful. That's brilliant. There's no, I don't know, Tottenham Tuesday or <laughs> Plymouth Sunday, is there? No. Sheffield Wednesday. It sounds like a Prince song. It does, doesn't it? It's just another Sheffield Wednesday. I danced <laughs> on that. So that. But there is kind of a more serious memory for me that in my youth, I went briefly... We lived in Plymouth, and I went to Plymouth College, which was a public school. I was a scholarship boy. Mm. We then moved, and I went to a comprehensive, so don't write in. But Wednesdays were half days, and I'd read about half days in Jennings' books. You know, was, The idea was that on Saturday morning, you'd go to school and play sport, which I didn't. I just had lessons because I couldn't do sport. So I had the weird experience of giving up Saturday mornings, which I didn't enjoy, and having a school lunch, which I didn't enjoy. But we got Wednesday afternoons off for sports practice, which obviously I didn't do. So every Wednesday lunchtime, I'd be in the centre of the city, and we lived in a place called Woodford outside Plimpton. You know, we lived in a kind of suburb of a suburb. Mm. But every Wednesday, I'd be in the middle of the biggest city in Devon, not that big, (laughs) and I had some money off my dad, and I was allowed to go and get my own lunch and get the bus home. When I used to go this is only interesting to me, to a Greek restaurant called the Parthenon. It was really a cafe. And there was a little milk bar or coffee bar, and the older kids would sit in there, and I'd sort of scurry past them in case they tried to kill me. (laughs) And I'd sit down, and I'd always have the same meal, which was mushroom omelette with chips and peas and a Coke. And I don't know if you like being on your own, Mike, but I love being on my own. (laughs) And this was probably the first time in my life that I'd been on my own as a kind of functioning person, as opposed to being left on a step or put to bed. And I could sit there, no mobile phone, no comics, and I would just sit there and get nice service because obviously, you know, I was a 13-year-old boy on my own. Mm. And I'd have a mushroom omelette and chips and and peas with a Coke. And then I'd just go to Smith's or a model shop and go home. So for me, Wednesdays are just a the best memory, because I did this for about two years. <laughs> I like that repetition of a meal. I must be like you in that, I think. You enjoy a repetitive meal. Yeah, when I was a student, in my first year, when I was living in halls of residence, every lunchtime I'd go to the canteen, I would walk along, I'd look at the menu, I'd look at all the food on offer, and I would have sausage, chips and beans. <laughs> but why would you have anything else? Indeed. Everything else is either a variant on that or not like it at all. <laughs> It drives my wife mad. She'll say, what did you have for dinner or, if she's at, or lunch? And I'll tell her, she said, but you had that yesterday. I'm like, I like it. Mm. It's like saying, you know, so what should we watch tonight? Let's watch Brookside. But you saw Brookside last night. Food is the one thing you're not allowed to repeat. Oh, thank you, David. That's a really good argument. I'm going to use that definitely because I'm constantly being told that I'm weird because I could eat shepherd's pie every day. <laughs> You eat it until you're bored with it. That seems to me logical. (laughs) We called it cottage pie in our house. I'm not quite sure of the difference, but I could eat cottage pie every night. I think one's beef, one's lamb. Ah. Mm. 
That would make sense. Yeah, of course, shepherds look after sheep and cottages look after cows, of course. Of course. Or something like that, but no. That's right, yes. Yeah, cottage pie, sausage. I'm not a big beans fan, but I the same meal. Whenever it, we have a takeaway, I always want a curry. And my wife is like, well, can we have pizza? I'm like, we can, but I will sulk. <laughs> what about Chinese? Bit more like a curry, same <laughs> continent, but I will still sulk. <laughs> it's curry night, and my wife is just eating a curry. And I'm like, curry! So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the first indication to me that I could eat the same thing always. Yeah, why not? You're an adult there. I am indeed an adult. Yes. It didn't happen for me until I went to university. But Wednesday was again that day that you were supposed to do sport. And I used to jump on the bus, go to London and see a play. So I went to see matinees, loads and loads of matinees through those years. I I just... I would love to have done that. It was brilliant. Then again, I did exactly the same thing as these sausage, chips and beans, in as much as if I found a play I really liked... I would go and see it again. Oh, really? Yeah. So there were several months where I just went down on a Wednesday and watched Privates on Parade. (laughs) I thought you were going to say, oh, the new Stoppard. Nope. (laughs) Privates on Parade. That's not Stoppard, is it? No, I like a good gaggy show, the ones with lots of jokes in. Respect for that. Mm. When my dad used to come to London, we'd go and see things, and we went and saw Ray Cooney farces. Yeah. And very much enjoyed it. I think we went to the Whitehall. Run for your wife? Was pretty sure it was Run for your wife, Mm -hmm. yeah. We also once saw No Sex, Please, We're British on Bournemouth Pier. That was really weird. That was probably the most British thing. If I'd worn a Union Jack hat and taken a bulldog, it wouldn't have been any more British. <laughs> Did you see David Jason in Run For Your Wife? Might have done. I can't, I'd have to look. I can't remember. Probably not, because I think I would have been like, oh, my God, I've seen David Jason. Although I think he did a lot of those things before he was particularly famous. He was just very good on stage. I wish I'd seen him then. Mm. We used to go to the Panto in Torquay every year, and we were reminiscing once. My dad said, of course, you saw the Beatles in pantomime. I was like, did I? And then there was a pause. He said, or was it the Baron Knights? (laughs) Dad, I really need to know this because there's a big difference. So your dog is going berserk. What's happened? Have you been attacked? He's, he hates that story. He's heard it so many times. Don't tell the Beatles of Baronites. Let me just close this door. <laughs> like that'll work. I slightly feel that we're talking about things that anybody who's our age will go, yeah, I remember the Baronites. <laughs> anybody under the age of 40, we're giving a fantastic education to Mel Brooks, the Beatles even. And suddenly, the idea of a Greek restaurant called the Parthenon, where you can get mushroom omelette, chips and mushy peas. Lovely. My final one, Mm. um, my bad thing, is one for the teenagers, if you're up for that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm down with the kids. No trouble. Yeah, well, this one's a real happener for the kids. It's acne. (laughs) If somebody had said to me when I was 16 that when you are 60, you will still get spots, I think I might have jumped out of a window. It's not that I suffer terribly from it, but... Oh, I had quite bad spots, not in the horrific sense, but everything about spots that a teenager gets that is unpleasant. Mm. They plagued me. They made me look unpleasant. I got bits of scars. They were on my back. All the horrible things about spots, but also the whole thing of, like, you want to meet girls. You haven't worked out that it's your personality that repels them, but you think it's the spots. (laughs) All the cliches, the Adrian Mole kind of jilted John cliches applied to me. And spots... I used to get this spot remover and there was a chest of drawers in my bedroom as a teenager that was there until my parents' house was sold. And there's a mark on it because it was such powerful spot cleaner that I got it on the chest of drawers once and it burnt the polish off. (laughs) And I would put this on my body twice a day. So it's a miracle I don't look like the man in the iron mask. We don't know what he looked like, Fairport. I don't know. The Phantom of the Opera. Yes. I don't know what kids put on nowadays, but in those days, we used to basically take a blowtorch to our faces. <laughs> the term, an astringent. An ast- oh, God, that word fills me with horror. <laughs> We're going to prescribe an astringent. No! <laughs> I never Basically. really knew what it meant, but it sounded horrible. Do you know that bit in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark when the spoiler... The Nazi opens the ark and his face burns off. <laughs> yeah. That's what it was like. And you could get this from Boots. Better to be eternally scarred than have spots. That was their theory, wasn't it? it? That was their that was their slogan for quite a long time. <laughs> oh, and all the language of it, pimple poppers. Oh. oh, it was just rank. And it really 
spoil what was already quite a difficult time in my life. It really made things worse. And as I say, the idea that these things continue to some degree and you'll have an important event to go to and you've got a spot or there'll be some discomfort from a spot or you'll be stressed and get stress spots, which (laughs) used to happen to me in my 40s. (laughs) So I'm putting that in there in the hope that one day this imaginary future generation will either cure acne or I will give them all acne (laughs) and it will serve them right for being cool. (laughs) And yet you, for the rest of your life, having put this into the time capsule, will be clear, beautiful, clear oh, well, that's skin. that's good to know. That's good. It's gone, you see, from your life. You've rejected it. Rejected it, rejected it. Clear like Clearasil, if it were. That was what it was called, Clearasil. Yes. Ugh. Which always sounded to me like a window cleaner. It was very much like a window. <laughs> if I'd done the windows with it, we could have saved a fortune. <laughs> if I got the window cleaner in to squeegee my face, that might have been better as well. <laughs> Oh, David. Oh, I feel for your teenage spotty boy. I'd had very few spots when I was young. And therefore, obviously, my cousin's beauty came over to me as well. I could have been the screaming Beatles fan. I was screaming because I couldn't move my face. (laughs) But no, I'm glad that you belong to a naturally beautiful genetic Aryan strain of human being. (laughs) Your life has been an endless parade of beauty and success. It makes me happy in my skin-related misery. Good. If I can bring a little unhappiness into the world. (laughs) Spread a little misery if you go on. Oh, David, fantastic. Thank you so much. It's really lovely to have heard the things you want to put into a time capsule. I'm going to seal it up. I'm going to dig a big hole. I'm going to bury it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to have the opportunity to vent, Mike. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and the brilliant writer and, as we now know, raconteur, David Quantic. Thanks for listening. You can hear all episodes of My Time Capsule as they're released if you subscribe on the podcast provider you're listening to this on, uh, to our podcast, obviously. Yeah, that sounds more complicated than it actually is. I'm sure you know how to do it, so please do, as the only way any podcast grows is with your help and support. Thanks. In the same way, it really helps if you rate the show, and if given the opportunity, you write a short but pleasant review. You can download or stream the theme tune anytime you like on Spotify. It was written by Pass the Peas Music, and that in itself is surely a good enough reason to give it your support. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram if you fancy. This was a cast off production for Acast, and the producer was John Fenton Stevens. And let's face it, with a name like that, that boy's going places. Yeah, Asda, probably. Now, there's a joke that doesn't work in the US of A, where I know we have followers, because the other day I asked people on Twitter where our podcast was heading in their opinion. Lots of very interesting suggestions, some I wouldn't want to repeat in public, but one person said in capital letters, so obviously shouted, IN THE HALL! (laughs) Clearly American. Oh yes, we are now officially reasonably successful internationally. Ho ho! Woo! Big time! Bye. <laughs>